This is Drew Kaiser, and you're listening to Wide Margins, episode 36, Three Tricks. This is another installment in our series on the life of Jacob called Favored Cheat, uh, the third episode, and I'm looking forward to getting to that, looking forward to being more regular in my podcasts. I apologize, but the holidays do present a distraction, don't they? I'm sure a lot of you are feeling like I am, ready to get back to the grind. Uh, School is back in session for us in just a few days, which means all of us get back on a schedule we're accustomed to, and that means for me, um, more time for podcasting. I've had time, I just haven't necessarily been home, and uh, without being home or at the wide margin studios, I'm not able to record like I would like to. So we're getting back to regularity, and I appreciate all the feedback, uh, the reviews, the ratings, uh, the comments, personal comments, those of you that I interact with personally, and uh, emails, I've received some cards. All of that is good stuff. Also, share it around on social media and just tell people about it. like for as many people as listen to podcasts to to know about this and give it a chance. I think a lot of people are listening to podcasts, but there's so much out there, they don't know where the good stuff is. Sometimes they're looking for something and um, just don't know how to find it. So if you think this is worth mentioning, please, by all means, mention it to somebody and tell them that you're getting something out of it, and maybe they'll listen and enjoy as well. The Life of Jacob. Today's episode is Three Tricks. We get to one of the stories of Jacob that you know everybody knows and loves. We've talked about the birth. We've talked about how Jacob traded a bowl of stew to Esau in exchange for Esau's birthright. So we're getting now to some tension in the story. And the tension gets really really serious and uncomfortable because Rebecca and Jacob conspired together to trick Isaac, Jacob's father, into blessing Jacob instead of Esau. Now the first two episodes have already set this whole thing up and told us the older will serve the younger. And then of course Esau himself gives all of this up in exchange for a bowl of stew. But now we're actually going to see this happen and see Isaac, despite himself, participate in this whole thing. And central to this story is a question that Isaac asks both of his boys, Jacob and Esau. And the question is this, who are you? He asks asks Jacob that question in Genesis chapter 27 verse 18, and Jacob lies and tells him that he is Esau. And he asks Esau that question in verse 32. Who are you? It's a question of identity. How do you see yourself? Explain yourself. Tell me who you are. And that is a very important question for all of us to answer. I don't know if you've ever tried to answer that question. Get a piece of paper out and just write down a few words who you are. Maybe you really struggled with your Twitter profile. (laughs) or your Facebook profile or something, trying to describe yourself. Uh, My wife was filling out uh, some kind of form or application or something 
where she was supposed to tell uh, the people she was filling the application out for a little about herself, and she had a really hard time doing that because customarily we don't like talking about ourselves, and I think that was the case with her. It was just modesty, but a lot of us haven't spent much time thinking about who we are and who we want to be, how do we see ourselves in five years, ten, ten years. And when we don't do that kind of introspection, we have identity crises, and uh, we get all messed up. And that's what we see happening here. These characters in the story just begin to unravel, and they're playing tricks on one another, and it's all due to an identity crisis. The people who scheme these tricks up don't understand themselves, they don't understand the role that they're supposed to be playing in God's plan. And so everything just becomes a total mess. And we're going to look at that today. Jacob is the schemer, but he's not the only schemer. He comes by it honestly, and so we'll see him playing schemes as well as the others. So let's start where most of these schemes begin with the father and the first trick. The first trick was played by Isaac, not Jacob. And we'll call it the heritage trick. It's the heritage trick. You know, the old heritage trick. I don't know if you've ever played this one before, but it's a pretty interesting trick. Isaac's about 137 years old now, and he summons Esau and makes preparations to bless him. This is Genesis 27. I'll start reading verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, He called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. So, The timing of this exchange seems to be prompted by some kind of an illness. Isaac, he says, I don't know the day of my death, but then he wants to do this before he dies, so he is sensing his own mortality here. And the interesting thing is that Isaac will live another 43 years after this event. He lives to be 180 years old, uh, according to Genesis 35, verse 28. So he's not really going to die, but none of us knows when that day will be. And Isaac wisely is making preparations. He is 137 years old. Um, so So he's doing this, but he calls Esau, not Jacob. Now, I am assuming a lot here. I'm assuming, for example, that Isaac knew about the oracle his wife received when she was pregnant with twins. That being that the older twin would serve the younger twin, that Esau would serve Jacob. Now, Isaac must have known about that. I guess Rebecca could have kept it a secret, but why would she have done that? Most couples would have shared that kind of information with one another. And Rebecca is not in on this. She's outside eavesdropping on this conversation, according to verse 5. Why is Isaac doing this important thing without including her in it? seems like he's playing a trick, a heritage trick. Uh, He did not want Jacob to inherit the blessing, and he's favoring Esau because Esau met the expectations, met Isaac's expectations about what a son should be. 
Isaac's blessing here is central to the story. He noticed the solemnity of the words in verse 4, that my soul may bless you before I die. And later Rebecca will say in verse 7 that this was a blessing made before the Lord. So it was very solemn, very important. And Moses is doing something as he's writing this that is really artful. You see how good a writer he is. And I know he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but the Spirit uses the styles of the individual writers. And Moses is doing something really fascinating here if you study it very closely. For one thing, he uses the term blessing seven times in the narrative in chapter 27 and chapter 28. When this story, if you look at just this story, the term blessing is used seven times. And you might say, well, I know that's the divine number, but every once in a while that's going to pop up as a coincidence. Sure. But then also there are seven scenes in the story in which you see two people in dialogue. The first one is Isaac with Esau that we just read. The second one is Rebekah with Jacob. The third one is Jacob with Isaac. The fourth one is Isaac with Esau. The fifth one is Rebekah with Jacob. The sixth one is Rebekah with Isaac. And then the seventh is Isaac with Jacob. So is that a coincidence? Again, it could be, but it's starting to look like Moses is trying to tell us something. And that is, this father's blessing is pivotal to the life of Jacob. Now, the father's blessing in patriarchal times was always very, very important. It was usually reserved for the firstborn, although in Abraham's family this was often not the case. It's not the case here. It's not the case, um, it wasn't the case with Isaac. Uh, Ishmael was his older brother. It's not the case with Jacob's children. Judah would be blessed above the others. Reuben and Simeon and Levi would not receive the same blessing as Judah. It's not the case with Joseph's sons, for Ephraim the younger was blessed over Manasseh the older. So it was usually reserved for the firstborn. It was also a legal binding will. It was an oral will, but things weren't put into writing back then like they are today. And it in this family, usually served the covenant, you know, that uh, was first expressed in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and following, that Abraham would be made into a great nation, and in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. It was usually regarded the Father's blessing as prophetic and absolute and irrevocable. Later, Esau will come to Isaac and ask him to reverse this blessing that he accidentally gives to Jacob. And Isaac tells him, or, I, yeah, Isaac tells him, I've made Jacob lord over you and all his brothers. I've given him for servants. And with grain and wine, I've sustained him. What can I do for you? What can I do? I, I've already made this blessing. It's irrevocable. What can I do? So the father's blessing was always pivotal, but especially in the story. It had consequences. And Isaac knows how pivotal it is, so he is trying to do this behind Rebekah's back. He's trying to overthrow an oracle. He's pulling Esau over to the side. Hey, I'm about to die. Let's get this done, and maybe we can reverse the effects of the prophecies and of your selling your birthright to your brother. 
now, why did he do this? Like I said, all of these tricks were based upon an identity crisis. And Isaac here, his crisis is legacy. He's building his identity on legacy. Legacy was really important to Isaac. We don't know a whole lot about Isaac, but one thing we know is he was very serious about his wells. This man dug wells, both in the uh, slang way of using the term dug and in the literal way. He, he dug them. He really liked them. But, uh, so he was, you, you find him going to where his father's wells were, redigging them, trying to protect them. Sometimes he had to move out and dig new wells. Why was he doing that? In those days, well digging had something to do with your legacy because a well was your lifeblood. Uh, we participate with this great organization called Healing Hands International. They dig wells in villages and in places in third world countries where there isn't clean drinking water. And a well with clean water just changes the village, changes everything in a way that a first world person just doesn't understand. We take our water for granted. In those days, a person who had land with a well on it was somebody who was wealthy, who had a name for himself, he had a legacy. So Isaac, knowing this, he dug wells. Legacy was very important to him. Now what did that have to do with blessing Esau instead of Jacob, according to the prophecy? Well, Esau fit the picture of a man in Isaac's eyes better than Jacob did. Esau was a hunter. He knew how to cook food just like his father liked it. And you notice that's how it was introduced. The favoritism was introduced as this story began. And now, even now, uh, when he's wanting to bless him, he's saying, first go out and catch some game and fix it like I like it. You know how I like it. Fix it for me. And Esau runs to do it. While he's doing that, we encounter a second trick. This trick is played by Rebecca, the wife, the mother And we'll call this the religious trick. The first trick was the heritage trick played by Isaac. This is the religious trick. She overheard her husband making plans with Esau, so she set her own plan into motion to ensure that her favorite, Jacob, would fulfill his destiny. And I'll read a little bit more here from chapter 27. This is verse 5. Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. So she is definitely playing a trick here. Conniving, going behind her husband's back, reversing his decisions. This is really bad. And she thinks of everything. Uh, She made the goats taste like the venison her husband loved. Uh, She's dressing Jacob up like... uh, dressing Jacob up in his brother's clothes so that he would smell like Esau. She's putting skins of the goats on Jacob's hands and neck so that he would feel like Esau. You know, Esau was a really hairy guy. So even though Isaac was blind, she didn't want to leave it up to the other senses to catch her in the act. So she's covering everything, making Jacob 
make food that tastes like Esau's, wants him to smell like Esau and feel like Esau. Her actions here are deplorable. She seems like a totally different person to me than the woman of faith you see at the beginning of the story. I don't know about you, but it seems like two different women here. And people change over time, and that may be what's going on with her. She's playing one of the oldest tricks in the book, the religious trick. She's trying to force God's hand. Think about it. She already had the prophecy. She already had the oracle of the birth of Jacob and Esau, which said the older will serve the younger. That should have been enough. Not only that, but there was the sign when the children came out of Jacob holding on to the heel of his brother. There was enough there to serve her ambitions for her younger son, Jacob, her favorite son. But that wasn't enough for her. She had to go and connive and trick and scheme, setting a really bad example that would be followed by her son, Jacob. Why? Well, we ought to know we do this all the time. We have promises from God. We have assurances from Him. And still we try to manipulate Him through religion. Now, there is a lot of, there are a lot of different ways to talk about religion. So let me just explain how I'm using the term right now. The positive way of using religion is it's the, the biblical religion explained and promoted by the Bible. In our case, the church. Jesus built the church. The church is something we need, we must be a part of. The church's worship is important. The church's organization is important. All of that is religion, and all of that is good and necessary. But then religion in general can often be a means by which we try to manipulate God into doing what we want. Treating prayer as some kind of a spell, for example, that obligates God to act in our favor. Or treating our worship habits as a means to get God on our side. You know, I've done this for God. Good works is another thing. I've done this for God. He owes me. And the, the obvious truth is that he doesn't owe us anything. Because all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. He didn't owe Rebecca anything. He didn't make this decision because of Rebecca or Jacob or Esau. As Paul explains later in Romans 9, before either was born, he said, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. It was based solely upon the sovereign choice of God. And he stated it already, which meant he was going to do it. We have to understand that when it comes to our salvation. Salvation comes by grace, not by works. Not by anything that we've done. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. I love this little story from the Middle East about a man traveling on his donkey. And he, he's going down the street and he sees this little fuzzy thing on the, on the road in front of him. So he stops and gets down off of his donkey to take a closer look. And he notices it's this tiny sparrow with these two spindly little legs sticking up in the air and the sparrow is lying on his back. So the man asks the sparrow if he is okay and the sparrow says, yeah, I'm okay. 
And so the man says, well, what are you doing lying on your back with your two little spindly legs sticking up into the air? And the sparrow said that he had heard a rumor that the sky was falling, and so he was sticking his legs up into the air for support. And the man said, you surely don't think that you're going to be able to hold the sky up with those two scrawny legs, do you? To which the sparrow replied, one does the best that he can. One does the best that he can. Well, I think sometimes we have that attitude when it comes to our good works, that yes, we've sinned, and no, we don't deserve, and we can all repeat the verses that say that, that we don't deserve salvation, heaven, eternal life, and all the good blessings that we have in Christ Jesus, but we still think we can obligate God to some degree through our good works. We get into this business of self-righteousness and comparison and just trying to earn God's favor through works. Now, good works are important, but what they should flow out of is the grace that God has shown to us, our gratitude for God and our our desire to emulate Him in His grace, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. So that's the trick that Rebecca was playing, the religious trick, trying to obligate God, manipulate Him after He had already prophesied what would come to pass. All of this was completely unnecessary, and yet she was going through it anyway. Which leads me to the third and final trick played by the character we expected from the most, the favored cheat himself, Jacob. And this is the coward's trick. Jacob goes through with his mother's plot and makes a huge mistake in the process. I'll start reading here in verse 18 uh, when this all starts to come together. And he comes to his father Isaac. He went to his father and he said, My father... And Isaac asked that question, that crucial question, Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He said, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me, that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments, and blessed him, and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you, give you of the dew of heaven, and of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. So it was done. Jacob followed through with his mother's advice, and like his mother and father, he was suffering from an identity crisis. 
He'd not yet learned to build his life on God. Instead, he was building his identity on his mother's expectations. Now, he might have been very young at this point, and you might not be too willing to blame him, but what he's playing here is the coward's trick. And you might say, well, how is he a coward? I could never follow through with this. And you make a good point, because I would be afraid to do this. Uh, Jacob goes, he takes some very bold moves. Let's put it that way. Um, he takes part in this very risky scheme, and his father asks him point blank, who are you? And he lies, and he says, I'm Esau. And it seems to me, old as his father is and blind as his father is, he's still in a very precarious situation. Uh, Isaac notices, for example, there's not enough, not enough time had elapsed for him to go out and hunt and kill and prepare food. And so Jacob, he just takes the Lord's name in vain, basically, and says, The Lord your God granted me success. That's a very serious thing to do. And then Isaac's still expressing doubt. He hears in Jacob's voice that something is different. And still Jacob held his ground. I would have run out of the room immediately. He was able to keep his hand steady when Isaac felt him. He lied a second time claiming to be Esau. He endured his father's kiss, and I, most of us would not have lasted through that whole ordeal. So he was able to face up to fear, but that's not the definition of courage, really. And there are many cowards who can face up to fear. It's not fear that makes you a coward. There's fear and courage. There's fear and cowardice. Cowardice comes from a loss of identity. When you put the wrong things first. And Jacob's identity here is being built on his mother. Notice how weak he is whenever she leads him through this plan. He says, when she first comes up with this, he says in verse 12, My brother Esau's a hairy man. I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I'll seem to be mocking him and bring a curse instead of a blessing. And she says, Let your curse be on me. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. And that's when Jacob should have stood up to his mother and said, This is wrong, because he knew that it was wrong, but instead he relented. He preferred to face the wrath of his father, even the wrath of God. Remember, he took God's name in vain, than his mother's disapproval. Here's a quote from Ernest Hemingway that I found to be very interesting, and it ties in here. Hemingway said, Cowardice is almost always simply a lack of ability to suspend the functioning of the imagination. I, you may have to think about that for a second, but what he's saying is cowardice is the inability to face reality. Have you ever known those people who just cannot give up on a dream even when all the evidence shows that he should do so? Um, you know, he, he wants to have this career the certain way, and he, he gets into his middle ages, and he's still jobless, unemployed, still doesn't have skills or education to, to go out and make a living for himself because he's chasing this dream, something like that. You know, that that's a form of cowardice. It's not the common kind that you think of whenever, um, you know, somebody is afraid because... There's a bravery involved, or a boldness, I should say. But truth is replaced by imagination. 
Jacob had forgotten who was in charge. He'd put his mother in God's place. And when you lose your ability to ignore your imagination and see reality, you're a coward. And that's one of the reasons cowardice is taken so seriously in the Bible. For example, in Revelation 21, verse 8, it's listed among other sins. In fact, cowards are first in line to the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. So why is God so hard on cowards? Cowardice is indicative of a heart that worships something above God, just like Jacob was doing here. If you're afraid of being baptized, for example, you're more afraid of commitment than you are of disobeying God's commands. If you're afraid to share the gospel with a friend, you're more afraid of losing the friendship than you are of that friend losing her soul. Um, If you won't get involved in the work your church is doing, you're more afraid of missing out on earthly things than you are of contributing to the death of the Lord's work in your community. Cowards are the worst offenders because they let their imaginations take over and they convince themselves that the physical illusion is more dangerous than the true spiritual threat. At the end of this story, Esau is in tears and he says to his father, verse 36, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. But Jacob's not the only cheat. Three tricks are played in this installment of the life of Jacob. First by his father, second by his mother. He comes by it honestly, and all of them are suffering an identity crisis. They don't know who they are. Esau doesn't know who he is. Do you know who you are? Have you even thought about it? If our lives are not grounded in our identity, and our identity is not built upon God, everything just falls apart. So take a little time this week and ask yourself, who am I? Am I playing tricks? Am I trying to manipulate and cheat my way through life? Or do I have a strong sense of who I am And is it built upon God? Am I trusting Him and walking confidently in that? Is that enough for me? That'll give you enough to chew on until next time when we continue the life of Jacob on Wide Margins.